welcome to another episode of the O3C podcast. Coming to you from O3C Games, we are Jonathan Dunn, that's me, and Chris Dow. Forever late to the party. That's him. And we are chatting about our love of video games. Announcement! Announcement! It's Christmas! Well, it's almost Christmas anyway. So we wanted to let you know what we're doing with our podding shedge over the festive period. Next week, boy oh boy, are you in for a treat. And not only will we be releasing next week's episode a day early, but it also means that if you open your podcast catching app of choice on Christmas Day, you will get to experience a bountiful special episode full of merriment where me and Chris will be exchanging video game themed gifts and talking about how wonderful they make us feel. It's going to be lovely. We've each bought each other something you want, something you need, something to wear and something to read. A uh, rule set reserved only for Chris and my wife. So you know it's special. <laughs> That's going to be lovely. And then a week later, on the very first day of the year of our Lord, 202 tens and three, we shall be releasing our end of year special, where we will be dissecting the year that was 2022, talking about our gaming highlights, looking forward to the games that are coming in 2023, and of course, awarding our very prestigious Game of the Year award to a game from the last 12 months. It's going to be a corker. Then we're having a week off before bringing you the next main episode of uh, season five on, I believe it will be the 9th of January. And we'll be telling you what will be coming in that episode later on in this episode. If you're feeling especially festive and feel like giving us a gift this Christmas, we would be very much open to receiving donations via PayPal, via our website, o3c.games, to go towards the ongoing upkeep and running of this podcast. Or if you're feeling extra cheery, this chrism tide, then please feel free to slap down a regular donation via our Patreon page, patreon.com slash O3C Games, and help support us all the way through the next calendar year. Pledging tiers start from as little as £4 a month, which is a pound an episode. You'll get tons of bonus content like exclusive bonus episodes, deleted scenes, video content, and access to the Discord server. You'll also get full videos of these episodes, which are uncut and ad-free to binge on. But we also realise that Christmas time can be a financially tricky time of year, so if you want to support us in another way, feel free to share the podcast on social media, tag your friends in it, and help bring in some new listeners for the next year. What are you buying? What are you playing? We are back, and we are back with our latest Fortnite report. Later on in this episode, me and Chris are going to report back on the games that we set each other to play two weeks ago. Chris is going to tell me how he's got on with Sunless Sea, and I'm going to be telling you how I got on with the last aquatic adventure of the human... Uh, the uh, aquatic adventures of the last humans. Human. Singular. I think that's it. It's one of them. The aquatic adventure of the last human. Let's call it that. That sounds right. That sounds that nice. Sounds right. it's, it's a good title, whether it is it or not. <laughs> Before we tell you about those, we are going to tell you about what we've been playing in the last week. And I would like to hand over to Mr. Dow to tell us what he's been playing in the last week. Chris? It has been a week of two halves. Not equally weighted halves, but built of two distinct chunks, nonetheless. So I'll break them down as chunks. Chunk A is the games I played in stolen moments around another relentless work schedule. And Chunk B has been a weekend away at the arcade club that I have only just got back from really last night. The regular stuff first then. Retro Goal, the kind of successor Ah, to New Star Soccer, launched on Switch a week or two ago. Can't remember exactly when. And when it first launched, I played a match or two and I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll get into this at some point and just left it for a bit. And then for some reason this week thought that would be a good game to play whilst I'm doing other stuff. Watching something, you know, not paying full attention really to either. After now playing through three and a half seasons, <laughs> I can say that I like it a lot. Fantastic. <laughs> it's probably more New Star Manager than New Star Soccer, but it's a lot more friendly. There's not quite as many moving parts to kind of consider between every match. As you've come to expect with these games, you're dumped into key attacking moments to influence play directly. And then defensive decisions are usually tied solely to your team stats and your loose guiding tactical hand, which can set formation, line up, attacking or defensive mindedness, that sort of thing. 
it did take a bit of getting used to this game as the side on view this time instead of top down does change approach play quite a bit. But I'm now in that satisfying rhythm of going, go on, one more game until I've played a whole season in one sitting. So <laughs> I know it's a good game. Fantastic. I'm currently managing Coventry and I'm mid-table in the Premier League after a late push for promotion <laughs> and a shock FA Cup victory last season. <laughs> I vaguely remember you playing this on mobile as well when it first came out. Yeah. At least for a little bit. And I do think console is a much better place to play yeah. as the direct button control you're given in these games is just much more satisfying than playing on a phone. Mm. And I'm at the stage where hitting 40-yard screamers that ping off the bar just feel really good because I made that happen yeah. and I knew what was going to happen and I had control over what was going to happen. And that sort of learning curve is always super satisfying in all of the new style games because there is a time when you're kind of fluffing a lot of shots and then eventually you're scoring more than you're missing and then eventually you're just an absolute machine. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Just like New Style Manager, I've also started to grow incredibly fond of my band of made-up players <laughs> and I am looking forward to seeing if I can push my attacking strike force of Nicky Dennis and Robert Hank Schrader to the top of the Prem and uh, into the Champions League next season. Are they actually made up or are they just Coventry players that you don't know? I think they are made up. <laughs> I think. I think. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't have like the, the fifth pro license for oh, yeah, no, a retro good point. goal. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I am looking forward to playing that, especially as the Touch version of Football Manager 2023 has just been released on Apple Arcade. And the Touch ones are the ones that are between football manager mobile and like full football manager it's got a lot more in-depth stuff than just the normal sort of arcadey basic stuff that you get in the, the standard mobile game but not quite as much as the full computer version and it's fucking dreadful yeah oh, <laughs> it's really dear. it's really bad it's not fun to play i mean i think if you're going to play a football manager game on a phone you need to play just the, the most basic version yeah i think it's just a poor fit and it doesn't run well and anything like that but i did want to play it i was really looking forward to playing it so maybe retro goal is going to be the one that scratches that itch what else have you played the other game i have spent some time with this week has been agents of mayhem which is the 2017 spin-off to the saints row series <laughs> On release, it received utterly middling reviews. Right up your street. <laughs> and it looked at the time to have essentially tanked the franchise for good. But I'd always been interested to play it because it seemed quite close to Crackdown, essentially, in tone and feel, rather than kind of how Saints Row had been to that point. So in the recent autumn Steam sale, I think the ultimate edition of the game was about £7. And although it was listed as unsupportive for the Steam Deck, I thought I'd give it a go. First boot didn't work at all. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Not at all. But after a bit of digging, I found out it actually doesn't work on Steam at all, on any platform, if you've got a controller plugged in. Um, <laughs> and apparently when Valve expanded Steam a couple of years ago to be able to read input from basically any device, mm. controller polling in Agents of Mayhem just broke. And then Volition, the developer, never bothered investigating, patching or fixing. Oh, wow. And it's, it's a real issue. So the ugly workaround that took me an evening to sort out is to map a full keyboard and mouse setup to the Steam Deck's buttons. <laughs> of course. It's not ideal, <laughs> I'll be honest, but it does make the game playable and it prevents title screen crashes, which are otherwise totally inevitable, whether you're playing on the Steam Deck or a beefy gaming PC. To make it as consoleized as possible, I found the Xbox controller mapping, I worked out the full keyboard mapping, cross-referenced between the two, and then laid out the deck as closely as I could. Steam now says I played the game for about five hours, though honestly... Probably only half of that has been in-game, <laughs> with, with, with the rest just relating to testing fixes yeah. and trying to fine-tune control setup. I've got a friend who also got a Steam Deck about the time that, that I did, and when I was logging in and out of the game endlessly to try and work out why it wouldn't work, I just saw a little message pop up saying, classic case of troubleshooting. <laughs> so, so I'm very aware of, of you know the Tinkerer's challenge. The game itself, though, it's, it's all right. You know, Like I said, it's essentially cracked down with a bit more of the humour from Saints Row. Yeah. You're jumping up buildings, you're completing missions, you're collecting orbs, you're picking your way through a whole host of non-linear contracts. And outside of the expectation people had when it released to be another big Saints Row game, without that, because I don't care, in 2022, just having a decent time. It's all fine. Because I'm playing with an emulated mouse and keyboard, movement has taken a bit of getting used to. And it doesn't quite have the sort of analog inertia you expect from a thumbstick because you're essentially mapping the WAS and D keys. So it's a bit more segmented in kind of yeah. how the movement is, is translated, which isn't ideal. But it's working and it's playable, even if I've had to get used to on-screen prompts saying things like press E when I have to think, 
What what key is right. E? Yeah. <laughs> because I've put it in strange places, but it's fine. If you're desperate to play it, the Xbox or PlayStation versions are probably much more preferable. You can get them for pennies. But at least I've been able to say I beat the problem that stumped other people. That's the real game. It is the real game. And plus, playing any sort of open world game like this, even if it's a few years old on the Steam Deck, still feels like witchcraft. Yeah. So I very much enjoy that as well. And so chunk B of my week was the Arcade Club. Yeah, boy. I've talked about this place enough times that... The basic setup is probably a waste of breath at this point. There are big additions to my last visit, though, even though I was there in Easter, mm. so it's not been that long. There's now a whole fourth floor of games, oh my goodness. with the previous three all being bolstered with even more machines as well. Incredible. I don't know an exact number that are now playable, but 400 is probably a pretty solid estimate for the whole place. Oh my goodness. A few were missing this time, probably because they have a lead site, they have a Blackpool site as well, and I think they've kind of remixed a few machines to spread across the three places. So I wasn't able to get my usual fix of Daytona, which is very sad. Um, and Fantastic Journey, the sequel to Parodius, uh, also has been moved on, if, uh, unless I missed it, or it could be broken down. But everything else, wowzers. There's too much to do, yeah. if anything. So favourite experiences from this visit. I had a near faultless playthrough of the first stage of Time Crisis 2, proving that muscle memory just doesn't really go away. <laughs> you know, I played it so much back on the PlayStation 2 that I just knew where people were. Yeah. I know exactly where they're going to pop up, even though I haven't played it in earnest in a long time. I really enjoyed finally understanding how to consistently begin a drift on the original Ridge Racer because it's a, it's a bit different to kind of how later Ridge Racer games work and it's also a bit different to other arcade racers of that era. I also managed to finish a whole track not getting disqualified or timed out, using manual gears and clutch. So oh that was goodness. very exciting. Yeah. Never done that in a racing game before. Yeah. So that was quite an achievement. I enjoyed upsetting my brother Tom after beating his high score on Flicky, which I like to do every time. Nice. He's good at the game, but I can usually be better yeah. after a few goes. I got pretty good at ancient Taito game Zookeeper, which is one of the very earliest examples of a platform game at all. I think it's from about 1980. Mm. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot more depth than you kind of expect from a game of that era. And that's always a real treat to kind of explore something you don't really know that well. We had fun both getting absolutely sharked on virtue tennis by a friendly Berry local um, <laughs> who popped along when we were playing. He was like, oh, do you mind if I have a game? And then Tom got smashed and then I got smashed. And he was just casually acting like, yeah, I can't even remember the buttons. It's like, come on, mate. What a prick. Come on. But he couldn't quite believe we'd driven 300 miles to be there. So he'd like serve an ace smash and then just be like, Margate, fucking hell. <laughs> Every single time. He sounds so, like yeah, the worst. We got, we, he, was a, he was a lovely guy, but we got absolutely tonked. We also got some proper time into Outrun 2 during the mm. fallow period when the arcade cleared as everyone left to watch England lose to France in oh, the World yeah. Cup. <laughs> that's the real <laughs> which game. Was, which was quite fun. I also played on the Star Wars Battle Pod experience, like an absolutely insane thing mm. that has you sat in this one-man IMAX-style orb <laughs> yeah. to fly X-Wings and other Star Warsy ships. It is as immersive as VR, oh, honestly. Wow. Like I felt dizzy coming out of yeah. it. And normally, if you ever find it in a real arcade, it's about two or three pounds a play. Mm. So it's, again, just amazing value to have here for a face value ticket of 17 quid. That's incredible, yeah. We were there for 11 and a half hours. We got our money's worth. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> Finally, game of the day, by a long way for me this time, was a clay pigeon shooting game called Shoot Away Pro. Mm. Never played it before, but it rivals Quick and Crash for the immersive arcade shooting experience. Brilliant. You've got a full-size shotgun that has really weighty recoil and you're shooting just really simple projected light clay pigeons as they zip across a big 15-foot screen in front of you. And we were taking it in turns to try and score a perfect 15 out of 15 mm. across like 10 pulls. And when I finally hit the last puck, I screamed out loud as if I'd personally won the World <laughs> Cup. Just <laughs> incredible gaming. Just incredible gaming. Arcade Club is, I think, the best place on earth. <laughs> like, being really, really honest for a moment, after hotels and petrol and food and drink and everything else, the day probably cost us £200 each. And yet I would go back next weekend if I could. Yeah, It's impossible for me to praise it enough. When we were leaving, one of the staff asked if we'd had a nice time and was amazed that we'd been there since opening. And when we said how far we'd come, that this was now a basically biannual trip, he looked utterly chuffed. And he's just a guy on the door. Yeah. And I think there's a real sense of pride just in the whole place because there's nothing like it. 
And he let on that come spring, they're going to expand again oh my to include goodness. a huge room scale VR showcase room on the ground floor as well. Jeez. Just, it's so good. At the moment, the miserable cost of living mire we are all finding ourselves in has made me and Georgia talk a few times about a move north one day if we ever hope to afford a house. Yeah. I'm not in any way joking when I say that being even 100 miles closer to Arcade Club could be what tips the balance. <laughs> like, it would be great. It's a wonderful place. Everyone should go. Don't let distance be an obstacle. <laughs> just just go. Is one of the great examples of the uh, success of a long-distance relationship. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) What have you played? Well, uh, you'll be pleased to know that I have managed to 100% Pokemon Violet now. 100% every Pokemon. Yeah, I managed to get fortunate with some random online people to trade for the, the Scarlet exclusives and the main Scarlet legendary it's it's actually quite well put together for like an anonymous online trading system with no communication basically if you have a pokemon in your collection that the other person doesn't have it'll glow and bounce around so you know what they need and then you select one that shows it to your trading partner and then when you can both see what the other one's offering if you want to trade you can go yep or no easy peasy it works really really well it does mean that you don't get a lot of success if you're looking for something that's very specific. Yeah. You know, the ones I was looking for, like the Scarlet exclusives, they were obviously the most common things that people were looking for, you know, in addition to like the starter Pokemon, they're the ones that you trade for, you know? Um, So it didn't actually take that long. I mean, obviously it's a lot quicker and more efficient to use the global transfer system, which is usually then implemented in the games after a few months, because basically you just, put a Pokemon up and say, I'm looking for exactly this Pokemon and then you can just browse and and trade. But, you know, I mean, they don't put that out when a new game first releases because it just makes things far too easy just to wallop the game entirely. And I did manage to find someone to trade the main Violet Legendary Pokemon for the main Scarlet uh, Legendary Pokemon, which is quite cool. But it does mean that I don't now have the Violet Legendary Pokemon for my living decks on Pokemon Home because, like I said, I traded that for the Scarlet one. So I've done what any sane person would do when playing a distinctly average game. and Started again. Well, uh, yeah, I've started a new <laughs> save file under a new profile to play through the game to completion so I can get another of the Violet Legendary to trade to my other file. And Of course. I mean, honestly, even though the game is pretty disappointing, it's still really comforting and I can do it all even more absentmindedly, which is nice. So yeah, and I'm uh, I'm kind of enjoying playing through it with a slightly different intention now. I'm just trying to get through it as quick as possible, trying to beef up my main starter Pokemon as much as possible so I can just use this one big tank to get through everything. So yeah, I'm making quite a bit of progress quite quickly. And yeah, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm enjoying it, which is annoying, but also it's a game I'm enjoying. So that's fine. Yeah, enjoy, that, that enjoy fine. what you enjoy. I've played a bit more God of War. Yeah. It's still fine. Everything's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Inevitably feels just too weighed down with story because it's a sequel. And the story is obviously how you justify the game's existence. Yeah. But there's just, there's too much to watch and not enough to play early on. And those last generation roadblocks that I mentioned last week, that's just so annoying. I'd also, I'd forgotten about another thing that's in the game, which is this sort of limbo world you enter when you're fast traveling. Basically, you fast travel by opening a door to the space between spaces, and then you open a door to get on the other side. And all this space between spaces is, is just a giant winding tree that you just run up just in circles around until the next area has loaded and then it will generate a magical doorway to appear in front of you. And it's a semi-elegant solution to a last generation problem, yeah. but it is absolutely maddening. Like I don't mind wasting that sort of time. It's it's maddening because it's so unnecessary and it's making yeah. me do something for no reason. I saw a tweet the other day that for this stage of the PlayStation 5's life, it still only has four games that are not cross-gen, mm. which is absurd and i know these things were impacted by the pandemic and everything's kind of behind schedule as to where it was and then because no one had the console there was no point developing exclusive for it because no one could actually buy the fucking thing but we're at a stage now where last gen machines are almost a decade old yeah 
and to still be forced to kind of launch stuff across generation is only going to hamper what developers can do if they're pushing for fidelity if they're pushing for you know attempting to use any of these kind of newer visual techniques or faster loading or anything else that's going to fundamentally make games feel a bit different there has to be a cutoff point where you start saying unfortunately we cannot support the playstation 4 indefinitely yeah you know it, it can't go on forever yeah and equally like it will happen with pc games too i'm not expecting to be able to play every game that ever releases on the steam deck I know it is, you know, a lower powered machine. There are lots of experiences I can enjoy, but I'm not going to expect to have everything as soon as it comes out. But yeah, there has to be a point where you stop worrying about placating every single part yeah. of kind of the PlayStation family or the PC family, you know, however you're doing it. But actually consider that it's like, if we want to push the medium forwards, we've got to get to a point where we say, and we're going to sunset that now. Yeah, ab- and absolutely. And we're really starting to see it in these sort of games where it's like, doesn't need to be there. Yeah. And yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's why I was a little bit tentative about Elden Ring being released cross-gen because yeah. I was like, ah, it's, gonna, it's only going to hold it back. Turns out it didn't with that game because actually anything that the game would benefit from being on more powerful hardware was stuff that actually was very, very simple to implement, like zero loading times and fast traveling, better graphics. Yeah. You know, th- there was no gameplay elements that were hampered by it. Whereas that is the case here. And I'm really encouraged to see that the new, well, the sequel to Jedi Fallen Order, Jedi Survivor, that is purely being developed for PS5 and and Xbox Series X. And Fallen Order was another game which had loads of those loading time roadblocks in there. So like you said, the time has definitely come to go, no, 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 we're not gonna, we're not gonna bother doing that. I mean, that was the main issue why Cyberpunk failed. Yeah, oh, completely. Yeah. So it's just, it's a bit of a shame with God of War, really, because you know these things are slowing down a game that I'm already finding just a bit too slow to get going, and it also feels like a bit of a missed opportunity because they've said that this is it for this, you know, this phase of the God of War series, the Nordic thing they're saying no that's this is that story done now and it's a shame not to see that done being fully embraced for next gen yeah hardware and making something really special but honestly i don't know how much more of this i'm going to play because i'm basically just sat waiting patiently for the ps5 upgrade for the witcher 3 yeah that's coming in a couple of days time and i have been playing a bit on the switch version again in anticipation and good i'm, I'm happy you have my, i mean my gosh like even when compared to pokemon violet it's still quite a muddy game yeah uh, so i'm sure yeah that the, the leap i'm going to experience will be nigh on transcendental and also also it'll be nice because i'm going to have a point of bonding with my father-in-law because he's just had his cataracts removed (laughs) there was there was a time when i was playing the witcher 3 on the switch for the most part it was fine i do a lot of switch gaming on the tv i've said this lots of times on the show before so i was not seeing the best of what this game could offer but that's how i was playing it and at some stage in one of the little side missions or something i remember falling into a well and the filter that went over the screen to show the water and everything else, when I sort of dipped the camera below the surface, I could not see what was going on. And it, that isn't hyperbole. It's yeah. not me saying like, oh, it was down to, down to a pixel. No, it was unviewable because the, the combination of everything else, the dynamic sort of screen resolution and everything else had dropped to the point where it was like, Geralt is honestly 10 pixels. Yeah. And it was just like a red, hazy mess. I was just bumping into things blindly to try and get through this section so I could see my character again. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great achievement, but at the same time, probably wasn't the best fit for the platform. Well, believe it or not, we didn't actually compare notes before we both set each other aquatic-themed games that neither of us had played for our latest (laughs) uh, Fortnite challenge. Chris set me the task of playing an underwater Metroidvania that he thought I'd like called The Aquatic Adventures of the Last Human. And I'm going to tell you how I got on with that. But first, Chris is going to tell you how he has got on with Sunless Sea, a narrative adventure, puzzle, adventure, strategy type game which i thought i'd really like uh, but found it too confusing to get started so i wanted chris's help in enjoying it you may or may not know that i'm not really a tabletop board game person and you will definitely know if you've listened to the show that i'm not really a roguelike person i'm also 
aesthetically not really a steampunk person, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed what I was able to play of Sun the Sea. Oh, good. To actually sit down and kind of start to pick through something that is complex, but there's a lot to love when you start kind of peeling back the layers. When you first boot up this game, you're met with some italic text that reads, explore, take risks, your first captain will probably die, later captains may succeed. And that quote should honestly be displayed in every menu, every time you start a new character, and just periodically flash across the screen, Mm. because it answers the main question you had when setting me this game. Like, how do you get into something that's pretty impenetrable? And the answer is, you just play it, and you explore, and you take risks, and know that you will fail repeatedly (laughs) but you will continue to learn things along the way and in all the time i've played i haven't made much tangible progress at all but i have made progress in what i understand of the game and that feels more like the journey than actually achieving something that says you win at the end of it you know in my play so far i'm starting to understand what the systems are that drive this world i'm understanding more about the wider narrative and it's this idea that i'm making i guess lateral progress around a circle And in time, maybe I'll be able to enter into the next onion layer and then I'll do that circle for a bit and then potentially go on again. As a kind of a setup for this whole game, Sunless Sea is set in an alternate history, flooded Lovecraftian mess of London that has been overrun with strange creatures, odd horrors and rival sea captains, all attempting to claim the waters for themselves. Now, I keep saying sea, but it's important to get the language right as Sunless Sea, despite being called Sunless Sea, is actually set in the Unterzee with a Z. Now, apparently the game was going to be called Sunless Z, and then in playtesting, everyone went, what's a Z? <laughs> like, what is this? So they went with the much more sensible route of naming it Sunless Sea and letting you find out hmm. through in-game text that the Z's everywhere. <laughs> because the developers were essentially worried that no one would have a clue what the game was about if they went with an Edward Lear-style nonsense name. <laughs> so as one of these Z captains, you are bobbing along the watery expanses and canals of a submerged, unlit London, doing your best not to die. And the game plays out as what I would describe a more interactive adventure game book. Mm. That's my best point of reference. Thinking back to the books I'd read as a kid, You do have direct control of your ship when on water. You need to engage in combat with other ships sometimes or other monsters. And you're essentially cruising about trying to land at a variety of ports and islands and points of interest. And then when you're docked, instead of having direct movement control, you're not walking about a city. You're using kind of nested menus to chase narrative strings through chunks of text. You're trading goods and items you might have accrued from other locations or from the spoils of battle. You're building your character's stats, all through making choices that feel very similar to that old to move east, turn to page 34, <laughs> to move west, turn to page 96, that you might have had in a book as a kid. Everything in this game is essentially text-based outside of map movement. There are a few little illustrations that supplement the text, but this is very much a game of reading. So it's good then that the writing is consistently engaging. Mm. You know, it's deliberately flowery, but that's by choice. And that works really well because it's attempting to paint a picture of this place outside of just seeing kind of a top-down view of some buildings or a little rocky outcrop or whatever else. Now, coming back to the opening quote, sometimes on the overworld Z, you will cruise straight into danger, accidentally engage a ship that is five times your size and just fail there and then. Sometimes you'll pick through text choices and essentially be backed into narrative corners that may not kill you outright, but will make death an eventual inevitability. It is definitely a game of frustration, but by intention. And it's more about this idea of exploring and taking these risks and in turn, restarting, retrying to try a different route, essentially. The the map is slightly refreshed every time. You do take on certain characteristics of your previous captain after each death as well. So it's not a completely flat start each time, but it is a fresh go to try and make your way through this world. At the very start of each adventure, you spend quite a bit of time setting up your character So you need to consider what their backstory is, what their motivations, what their goals, all these kind of narrative choices then feed into your stats and in turn will start to influence your play style as well. Now, again, I'm not going to lie and suggest that I've had much idea at all with my first 10 or so characters as to what veils does or what pages mean or why I might need iron or hearts or mirrors and what they correspond to. But by my third or fourth death and second or third stint, deep dive in the wiki (laughs) i at least started to realize that 
veils, for example, would influence the range at which an enemy could detect you in combat. So that's a good thing to have if you're trying to avoid encounters. And iron was tied to combat effectiveness. So if your iron stat's higher, you're going to be slightly better in battle. None of the starting choices spec you out of success. That's far more tied to just your own personal knowledge of the game, <laughs> meaning that I've enjoyed hearty failures each time I've played. But they do make certain routes and challenges kind of more or less difficult, as it were. During the game, then, you are essentially trying to balance all sorts of numbers that we've just mentioned, but also a further series of numbers like your supplies, your fuel level, your terror level, all whilst attempting to uncover the map more, open trade routes, work towards the goal you chose at the start of the game. Because you can say, I'm going for glory and fame. I'm trying to be like a famous cartographer, that kind of thing. You've got like something that you're aiming for. Money is obviously very important too. The currency here is abstracted into echoes rather than good old pound sterling, just to make it something else to have to remember. But without regular income, everything will fall apart. And a lot of the early game, referring to the beginning of an individual run, as well as the wider time you're going to spend across runs as a new player, surrounds finding means of income to help balance all your other needs. Because if you've got no money, you're not going to have any supplies. If you've got no supplies, you're not going to have a crew. Like it, it has that kind of cascading effect. One of the things I have not fully got my head around, but I like the idea of, is that terror level I mentioned earlier. That's quite an interesting component to have to balance too. It's one that hasn't affected me greatly so far because I usually fail my mission as a result of something much more grounded, like financial destitution, <laughs> rather than my crew losing their minds at the eldritch horrors lurking in the unlit Z. But in essence, every time you are cruising in open water, your terror level will begin to rise. You can keep your lights on on your ship to kind of make it rise slightly slower, but that means you're then easier to detect by enemies and monsters and things like that. So again, it's a balancing act of how far are you trying to get with one little sailing venture? What are you aiming for? And, and doing your best to either, you know, not encounter anyone if you're trying just to conserve the health and hull of your ship, or are you just going for it because you do need supplies and it's kind of a last ditch thing to try and take down someone else in the hope that they're going to have some fuel you can, you can steal. This is not the long and short of it though. <laughs> Oh, no. As you trundle along, like I said, you're managing your income, but you also have to think about your crew. You have to think about the health of your ship as well as your, your own kind of crew's health. And a bit I've still not really got to grips with. You have a collection of cards that populate your captain's journal and certain actions and items and story events will grant you different cards, which in turn will open other dialogue options or narrative arcs in the future. So early on, it's not uncommon to moor at the little island, be greeted by weird and wonderful characters and then only be able to choose certain dialogue responses at that time because you're missing certain card characteristics. Sometimes that's as binary as saying, I have to fight because I don't have the card that would allow me to flee this encounter. Sometimes it could be the difference between being able to gain uh, a useful item or not, or just being sent off on your way. Again, I can't profess to actually have a hand on any of this. Like I've tried really hard, but in the hours I've played, I went from, I guess, first just blindly clicking options watching the supplies and fuel meter just tank and then dying of starvation at sea to now at least choosing options a bit more pointedly, surviving increasingly longer times, growing my crew beyond just kind of a skeleton staff of one and beginning to complete some very basic objectives like escorting character A to location B or finding item C to sell at profit at location D to have kind of enough money to sustain my venture a little bit further. This is a really complex layered game. and experimentation is everything but it is also a game that requires you to really put time into it to really start to understand and enjoy it i think this is another classic example if this was the game i was playing if i had nothing else installed on any platform if i'd had access to no other titles you could become extremely invested in it but i think the the issue for me is always going to be i'm quite a pinball player as in i just jump between things all the time i want to kind of see lots and lots of different games and for someone that is bouncing between experiences at relative speed in any given week, it's quite a hard game to get into without consistency and play and application. What I did quite like, the setup reminded me most of Sid Meier's Pirates, but Pirates, if it were draped in a darkness, both aesthetically, but also in how its mechanics are shrouded from direct sight. <laughs> because in Pirates, you're still spending much of your runs making micro choices, you're managing stats, you're revealing the map, you're deciding on your end goals, but it doesn't have this layer of linguistic cover that forces you to play with a guidebook to hand for the first few hours. It's much more kind of easy to, to get your head around what's going on. I think Sunder Sea then is very good 
but maybe not the game for me, at least right now, in terms of how I approach play. Mm. A fun, quick arcade romp, this is not. (laughs) (laughs) Now, friend of the show, David Boys Layton, is a big fan of this game and has on several occasions offered a bit of help getting started with some of the systems of the Z. And I may take him up on that offer next time we hang out in person to kind of flesh out just some of my base understanding that I've accrued through trial and error. Because it could well be a game that just having someone to be like, you don't want to choose that at the beginning. Mm. Later on, once you know what's going on, that's a good choice. But at the moment, you don't want to do that. And having that sort of guiding hand, I think, would really help just to have at least one run where you're like, oh, I'm two hours in and I haven't died yet. I'm actually making a bit of forward momentum. And then when you do kind of kick the bucket, it's not the end of the world because you've actually gained something more than just you know, five minutes here and five minutes there. If anyone is into board games, if you're into the old fighting fantasy books, if you're into stat-driven rogue games like FTL, or if you just want a deeper, tougher, more shadowy take on Sid Meier's Pirates, this is probably a great game for you. For everyone else, your mileage is going to vary, but I think it's impossible to look at what's been built here and not be impressed with just how considered every aspect of this liquid world is, because everything is interlocking. And it's always really impressive to see a game managed to do that and at least in the time i've been playing it it doesn't seem to drop the ball anywhere there hasn't been a time where it's like oh well you can just utterly exploit it if you do that at the beginning you're always balancing things there's never a time when it's going to be just plain sailing from kind of you know beginning to end it's not an easy game but it's definitely one that i have enjoyed and i think other people with a bigger brain than me will enjoy even more (laughs) so thank you for setting me this challenge. Well, thank you, thank you. It's, uh, I don't yeah. know if that's helpful. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, like that's uh, that's the start of a lot of sentences that I that I need to know <laughs> with this game. I, I'm going to find a way to finish them. But I think I, I know exactly what you mean when saying what you were saying about wanting somebody to sit with you to just to, just to give you a bit of guidance. So maybe when you've had that from David, I can have that from you. Yeah, we'll pass it on again. you want to know how i got on with my underwater adventure yeah did you sink or swim well i definitely sank because you're entirely underwater for the whole thing in a little submarine so i've always thought there were two types of underwater game those that are like transcendent and beautiful like abzu yeah but those are massively outweighed by the games that are claustrophobic and terrifying like echo the dolphin i hate it (laughs) yeah (laughs) Famously. <laughs> but the Aquatic Adventures of the Last Human, it, it definitely straddles that divide because there are yeah. many, many gentle moments of exploration where you can lose yourself in the underwater dystopian ruins of civilization, but also moments where you feel totally vulnerable in your little submarine going up against all manner of gargantuan monsters of the deep. <laughs> now, whilst this isn't a platform game, it's still like a 2D traversal game and underwater levels are usually the blight of a platform game i've said before about how i think the modern rayman games like rayman legends rayman origins those games have really been the exception to this because of how much control they give you in those underwater levels and that's key to making them more enjoyable it's it's why this isn't horrible to play because you have very easy direct control of your submergible and the unlockable metroidvania upgrades that you get of different weapons and abilities they're all pretty simple and immediate to use and the game doesn't really do anything between the exploration and the enormous monster fights because whilst there are obstacles to avoid there aren't really enemies per se uh, but there are um boss fights big big, big bosses big bloody boss fights <laughs> And whilst the boss fights are cool, um, it's also where you feel the unevenness of the game the most. Yeah. Because the entire construction of the game feels very, very woolly. Like every single boss fight I've come up against, I haven't known whether I've got there too soon or if I really need another upgrade to take them on. Like in Metroid Dread, which is extraordinarily well designed in that you couldn't accidentally get to a boss that you couldn't defeat. But I just don't really have the confidence in this game to stick with a boss fight that's wiping me out in one hit because I don't (laughs) know if I'm going to be there or not. Like, I don't want to just, like, push through and push through because I know technically I could beat it just through attrition and then get, like, some magic underwater whale harpoon that I needed to defeat that massive underwater whale or something. (laughs) I, I think it's one of the issues with not having 
enemies in the world around you is that you don't really get a chance to test your strength until you're up against a boss. If you enter an area with a bunch of monsters that seemingly can't be killed or they're taking you out far too easily, it's a good sign that maybe you need to try and go somewhere else first. I think one of the things that makes a good Metroidvania really successful is making you feel like you're exploring freely whilst also subtly subliminally guiding you in the right way so that you're discovering things and unlocking things at a nice regular pace and you're never too frustrated or lost or confused and that's where i think this game falls down a little bit it's got all the elements in there it's got the unlockable abilities upgrades roadblocks bosses but it all felt a little bit too obtusely constructed to be properly enjoyable this might be a rollover from what we were talking about last week with the Playdate games and the fact that our frazzled brains just couldn't hold enough information in there at one time. Yeah. <laughs> because this is also the same issue I had with the game Tunic that I played. That's a game that it wants you to get lost. But for me, in order to have fun feeling lost in a game, I also need to be able to know how to get back to where I was. And I couldn't keep track of that in Tunic. I can't keep track of that in this game either. And there's a fundamental issue related to this in the fact that having a full map in the Aquatic Adventures, that's an unlockable that you find uh, where it should absolutely be with you from the start. And it should also have a bit more functionality to identify where things are, where you've been, where you haven't, like a map in a Metroid game does, so that you can enjoy being lost. Yeah. And it does feel like all of the upgrades and the unlockables and all those things have all sort of just been randomly scattered uh, across this world without any real design. Almost like one of those like randomised Zelda games, you know, that you get where actually it, it does technically work because all the items you can find in the right places at the right time. But also it's it's kind of a lucky dip. Yeah. And I think if yeah. you play through this game following one route you're going to have a very different experience to someone playing the game who happens to go through another route. An easier route. (laughs) Well, yeah, potentially. Yeah. yeah. And and this is something it has in common with another Metroidvania that I played in the last couple of years called Astalon Tears of the Earth. Yes, I remember that one. And and that was good. I enjoyed it, but my friend Casper enjoyed it significantly more. And that's down, I think, to the route he took through the game, which I think had a clearer, more satisfying arc than the journey I took through the game. I think this is always going to be an issue with independently developed games without the means of playtesting it within an inch of its life, with a never-ending budget. But it means that when you have a game like Ori and the Blind Forest or Hollow Knight that absolutely nails it. No Hollow Knight pun intended there. It's <laughs> it's even more impressive. Yeah. But I like this game. I like this game and I want to stick with it. The story of the game is nice and intriguing. It's, it's found and told in a very Dark Souls kind of way where you just find little audio logs just scattered around the depths that give you a bit of an insight into what happened and what, if anything, is still happening with humanity. It's got a, a strong, if unsubtle, eco message, which is nice. I found this one log that just simply said, the surface used to be covered in trees and forests, but we wiped our asses with them. <laughs> Unfortunately, it wasn't narrated by Matt Berry, which it should have been. <laughs> the game also looks really nice. It's got very, very nice underwater pixel art. Although it's yet another game that I desperately wish I could play on the 3DS. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But it does look gorgeous. There are some just beautifully drawn elements, including there's a sunken wind farm that I particularly liked. It also sounds gorgeous. It's got beautiful sort of minimalist ambient music and very evocative sound design. Very nice indeed. It, it made me... I was playing this on the Steam Deck, but it made me want to play it on, on a screen through my Steam Dock yeah. rather than yeah. just in handheld. So that's good. So that's good. That's good. So yeah, all in all, like I said, it's a good game. It, it probably requires just a bit more brain power and skill than I was willing to give it right now. So I think, again, me and you, Chris, we've got something in common there with, with our experiences this week, <laughs> even though I'm sure my game actually is, is a lot less cognitively demanding than Sunless Sea. But I think maybe maybe having like finding like a little roadmap of, of an order of which to aim for in this game might take the edge off a little bit in terms of yeah. how punishing it feels because it does sort of ping pong a little bit between 
nice relaxing meditative exploration and then just really hard almost feeling unfair boss fights dark souls bosses yeah but then like like you know like i'm fine with the dark souls bosses if i've played all of the dark souls exploration leading up to them you know because you're in that mindset whereas this is really yeah it's it's a bit bit of tonal whiplash which if, if you like that sort of thing in all seriousness i i do think this is a game for me and i'm really pleased to have played it I'd like to play it on a bigger screen. I'd like to give it a bit more, bit more of a fuller go when uh, maybe when I've got a bit more resilience to um, to take down some of these bosses and make a bit more progress. But yeah, the aquatic adventure of the last human. Well, there we go. Those are two games that we played. Uh, so what's happening next? Well, what is happening next? The time has come to set our next Fortnite challenge, but it's actually going to be setting our Christmas homework. Oh! Exactly, because it's going to be several weeks till we report back on these games, not until the new year. So I hope you've put some real thought into this, because I I haven't. I have set you a game with a bit of a meta game, because I know how much you love a meta game. The game, my friend, is silver oh wow (laughs) so silver is a fantastic action adventure fantasy rpg it actually made it onto my honorable mentions for my top 100 yeah great story great soundtrack incredibly earnest voice acting and some of the most satisfyingly meaty sound effects you'll ever hear now (laughs) it's over 20 years old so i'm also setting you a bit of a meta game Now, I know that the game had a console port on the Dreamcast, but I played it on the PC and it had this incredibly cool control mechanic for its combat, whereby you held the mouse button down to initiate combat and then move the mouse in the direction you wanted to attack, which gave it an almost one-to-one sword swinging feel that like you wouldn't get again until motion controls became a thing. Yeah. I've got the game in my Steam library. It says it's unsupported on Steam Deck, which I know means oh, we'll fuck all to a maverick we'll renegade such as yourself. <laughs> but also, I imagine that the controls will need a heck of a tinkering to get working yeah. nicely yeah. on the PC version. I'm not going to put you through all of that stuff unnecessarily, because <laughs> in addition to reporting back on the game, I want yeah. you to report back on the best way to play this game in 2023, yeah, whether that okay. is emulating the Dreamcast version. Like, I've no idea if that was even a good port of the game. It might be tinkering your way around getting it working on the Steam Deck. It might be just playing it old school with the mouse and keyboard or another way entirely. I don't know. But I trust you to find the best way. And I also hope that your reward for finding the best way to experience it is you being able to experience it. I will accept that challenge. Fantastic. I do do like a tinker. Honestly, if if, if every Fortnite challenge was, can you make this game work? I'd be all (laughs) over it. (laughs) For you, a Christmas game for a Christmas break. (gasps) Is it the Grinch on the Game Boy Color? No, but that's a good one. It's a good game. Isn't it? It's basically Metal Gear Solid. I think it's the same engine. It is, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, no, you are going back in time to 1991. Oh, my goodness. For the Mega Drive edition of James Pond 2. Ah. Now, this is very much a platform game from 1991, but it's an enjoyable Uh, one. uh. You are saving penguins, quite Uh. literally the penguins from McVitie's Penguin Bars in a strange twist of product placement. Goodness me. Believe it or not. (laughs) As you traverse what seems an endless tower of jumpy hoppy stages... And the inside of each stage is kind of bright day-glow colours. The outside of each stage is a, is a beautiful snowy scene. Hmm. I think it's even set at the North Pole. I think it is. I think it's got a Santa's Workshop vibe going on there as well. As an added task, I don't just want you to play the 1991 Mega Drive version. I would also like you to play the Game Boy Advance port of the game from 2004. Ooh. Because, bizarrely, it is the same shell of a game, but without any of the same level layouts. Okay. Every level is different. Now, I once tweeted the original developer to ask why exactly this was the case, and he had no idea. He suggested that perhaps the publisher who bought the rights to the franchise in the aughts got the art, got the music, got the name, but not the stage designs, which seems bananas, but you never know how these contract law works. There's there's often these weird bits that you don't consider. But yeah, the Game Boy Advance version, the PlayStation 1 version, they were all based on this new version of different levels. So... I'd like to hear your opinion on James Pond too, but more importantly, 
I would like to know what you prefer of the two. Um, and are there any like particularly notable differences that make you go, oh no, the Game Boy Advance is clearly the way to play it these days. Or is the Mega Drive original the one to go for? And actually, the most, most important thing, did they get you in the Christmas spirit? Yeah. Did, those, did those penguin bars put you in the mood to uh, gorge yourself over this December? I will absolutely let you know. <laughs> So there we go. That was our latest Fortnite report. Chris had a time playing Somnus Sea. I, I had a time playing the Aquatic Adventures of the Last Human. Next week, we are putting down our playdates, we're putting down our paddles, and we are picking up our Christmas platters. What is on those platters? Gifts for each other. Please do join us for a fantastic festive celebratory episode. If you've enjoyed this episode or you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on your social media platforms. Tag us on social media at O3C Games. Consider pledging some money to us. If you go to our website, o3c.games support, you can find a one-off donation button via PayPal. We very much appreciate that. You can also find a link to our Patreon page where you can pledge a regular monthly rolling donation in exchange for some incredible perks. Reach out to us. Tell us what you're playing this Christmas. You can find us on all our social media platforms at O3C Games, or you can reach out to us individually. If you like, I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I am behind a lock at Chaz underscore Hodges. Send me a request. I might let you in. And please do <laughs> join us next week for our Gifts and Glad Tidings Christmas special. Ta-da! And now, a word from our sponsor. And now, a word from our sponsor. Sequelcast 2 and Friends looks at movies and video games and franchises one movie and game at a time. Hosted by Matt Bradley Shurgi, Thrasher, and Alex Miller, been going since 2009, and we're part of the HyperX Podcast Network. The award-winning Go Nintendo podcast is the best place to get the latest news on the world of Nintendo. We cover the biggest stories, share impressions of the latest games, and answer your burning questions. There's also some general pop culture talk, game music trivia, a heaping helping of silliness, and did I mention our robot companion? I'm the star of the show. Catch new episodes of the Go Nintendo podcast every Saturday on the HyperX Podcast Network.